Welcome to the Republic of Football, where our front door is always open. There's always a little something in the smoker, and it's always football season. I am your host, David Ubbin, with Dave Campbell's Texas Football. You can read my work at texasfootball.com. This is our first show. It's going to be a good one. UTSA head coach Frank Wilson will be joining us later for a fantastic conversation about his team, his career, a lot more. Uh, our fearless producer, Max Thompson, and I drove all the way to San Antonio to have it, so you know it's good. We'll have a rotating group of guest co-hosts, and today, for our pilot episode, I'm joined by Dave Campbell's Texas Football Managing Editor, Greg Tepper. We're going to be talking everything college football from across the state on this show. If it's happening, and you should know about it, it's going to be on the Republic of Football. Also, make sure to jump on your podcast peddler of choice and rate us, leave a review, it only makes us stronger, and what's not strong right now, my voice, apologies, everyone. Uh, I was in Denver all weekend at a lake house, hunkered down watching March Madness. It was a great time. I definitely did not illegally jump into a freezing lake several times. All this to say, my health and voice have seen better days. Greg, how are you feeling on the pilot episode of the Republic of Football? Better than you. <laughs> uh, I, I, I didn't, you know. Look, I know that you said that you didn't jump into a freezing lake multiple times. Um, and that's good because otherwise that would make you sick and, and maybe affect your voice in some way. Possibly. But as we know, your voice is very strong right now and you're feeling 100%. And so I'm glad you didn't illegally jump in a freezing lake a couple of most times. Most definitely. Most definitely. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, I, I definitely don't self-incriminate on the pilot episode Absolutely. of podcast. That, Why, who, what kind of that. person? Also, a quick note. We need a theme song. Uh, it's just that simple. If you want to produce one or donate one, we are accepting all applications. However, a warning. If your song is trash, I will alert you to that uncomfortable reality. I'm sorry. Mm -hmm. uh, but if it's great, our legacies will be forever intertwined. And so... I'm looking forward to that. Uh, also, by the way, the nature of my personality on this show, there's going to be food talk. Uh, I figure we should start there briefly. This isn't going to be brief, but I'm going to try to keep it brief. Uh, a few weeks ago, a few weeks ago, I made my way down to TCU. Hmm? Um, check out the Horned Frogs. Check in with Gary Patterson. Can we call him the embattled Gary Patterson? Not quite. Close. Yeah. I feel like he's not quite embattled, <laughs> but um, for a guy in Gary Patterson who generally likes to keep uh, a, a, keep his desk clean, so to speak, right? Uh, it is unnaturally, uh, you know, a little, little cluttered right now. A few different things going on that are maybe not his most favorite things that he's ever experienced as TCU head coach. Maybe that's an idea for the second show, the actual line between regular coach and an embattled coach. We'll get there. Yeah. We'll get there. But... Uh, Anyway, I, I finished practice standing up on the sidelines in a hot indoor facility for two hours. It leaves one famished. And I found my way to Heim Barbecue. Mm. <sighs> Guys, listen. Greg, he's a listener of your show, Texas Football Today. Travis Heim, known pitmaster, legend in the state. I'll be honest that we've had... On Texas Football Today, our daily live show at TexasFootball.com, we've had some some big guests before. We've had Bun B on the show. <laughs> um, but I would say that as far as fans are concerned, he is the he is the fan that I value the most. The and OG. that includes that includes like my mom and my wife who sure. supposedly listen to the show. Daily. I, I've never actually con confirmed. I don't think my wife's listened to any of my podcasts. Mm. It's probably for the best. That's uh, I'll be <laughs> honest. In the same way that my wife doesn't follow my Twitter account, and that's a good thing. Uh, it's just ultimately there, there's you know, there needs to be a little bit of separation. I there. found that ignorance is the best way for one to maintain respect for me. If they don't know mm. anything I say, then they you know it's yeah it's, it's always good. It's tough to hate somebody you don't know. I think all of our collective's dream is to have Travis be a sponsor for every show that we do. So I say this as earnestly as I can. Travis Heim, make our dreams come true. So you enjoyed your trip to Heim. Listen. I ate the bacon burnt ends, which, 
if you're not aware, because that's not really a thing. Yeah. Basically, hunks of pork belly, some fattier than others, coated in, and I use this term as lovingly and deliciously as possible, coated in a sludge of maple syrup, brown sugar, salt, pepper, another blend of herbs and spices, I can only assume, <laughs> and then smoked for who knows how long. I was a different man after I ate that. <laughs> nothing nothing <laughs> fires up the taste buds quite like the word sludge. It does. And listen, I don't say this lightly. I woke up the next day thinking about the bacon burnt ends. I have thought about them several times since. I have charted out a return visit. I warned you this wasn't going to be brief, and here we are. Okay. But let's get into today's show. Okay. The transfer market. It has affected the state of Texas. Most notably last week, Calvin Anderson of Rice, a three-year starter, joining the Longhorns. Uh, Sunday, Baylor landed a new quarterback, Jalen McClendon from NC State. We've seen a few others. Uh, Derek Thomas, a linebacker, followed Matt Rule from Temple to Baylor. After spending a year at Temple, finding it did not suit him. Uh, Houston added Darian Owens from Miami. Rice added a quarterback from Vanderbilt. Preston Anderson, another uh, defensive lineman from Rice, moving over to Texas Tech. There's been a lot of guys come in. Uh, The graduate transfer rule, I like it. It offers a little bit of freedom. But I don't like charades. It's my least favorite party game. (laughs) And the graduate transfer rule has turned into a charade. It was installed in 2006 as a, a move for high-achieving students. The idea is that you can pursue a graduate degree that is not offered at your current university. That's the design. And then obviously Russell Wilson famously moving from NC State to Wisconsin helped ignite it into the closest thing that college sports has to free agency. You know, but according to the NCAA, 32% uh, – or actually, according to the NCAA, in 2011, 32 basketball and football players took advantage of the rule. In 2016, it was 204. This is a growing thing. Not a growing thing. It's a hugely impactful thing. It's almost like an, it's its own separate off-season storyline. It's not a rare thing. It's like, okay, the season's done. Who's going to leave? Who's going to stay? What's the situation going to be? But a small fraction of those players are actually getting the degree that they leave their school for. And so the rule, I feel like, needs to be tweaked. we got to do something to this uh, or, or, or change. I don't like that it's, it's, it's an academic rule that's turned into a, 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 a sports rule. And I like the freedom. Players should have the freedom. But like I said, the whole thing has turned into a charade. The Chicago Tribune... Uh, did a study recently and found that 32% of basketball players that exercised the rule actually earned the degree that they left to pursue. In football, 24%. That is a charade. (laughs) No, it it absolutely is a charade. Here is my overall issue, though, is that I don't think there's a viable way to solve it because – in a lot of respects, the toothpaste is out of the tube. Once they decided to, once they made that rule that you could transfer as a graduate, then all of a sudden, that is a an excuse, not an excuse, but that gives people enough reason to find a loophole and find a way to make this about sports. Inevitably, when you make a rule that you say is going to be academic. of the time, it will become about athletics. And so the only way you can do it is to revoke the rule, which I think would cause more harm than good. So, look, do I like the fact that as a graduate student, you get to enter another meat market like you did when you were a junior in high school? No, I I don't prefer that. But I also, unfortunately... I think that this is an instance in which the damage has already been done, and 
any sort of rules that you make to it aside from basically abolishing the rule are only they would they would have a very negligible effect on on how it functionally works. Well, here here's what I would like to see. The reality is transfer reform is coming to college sports. It's coming. There's a transfer working group right now. They met in February. They're going to meet again in April. They're going to present something to the NCAA membership in June that they're going to be able to vote on. Exactly what they will present will be open for a lot of debate. We'll see. But the rules are going to change. Um, There's not going to be free transfer, a totally free situation. What I would like to see is one free transfer for everyone. And you can't follow a coach. If a coach leaves, you can't go with him. I, I don't like the idea of coaches like Tom Herman being able to bring, you know, Ed well, obviously you graduate Ed Oliver. Mm-hmm. Or, you know, in another world, you know, in a different timeline, Greg Ward. You can't bring your guy to your new mm-hmm. school. I don't like that idea. I feel like that is is a little bit too far. But if a guy leaves, you should have that freedom. And I also like one of the things that the transfer group has brought about is that free transfer is only available to students who have at least a 3.0 GPA. I like the idea of incentivizing what the NCAA likes to pretend that it is about. That's fine. Nobody gets hurt in that situation. If you don't get it done in the classroom, you don't have that that opportunity. I like that idea. And I, I you know, I'm I'm as pro player as you can get, I think. You know, I I think if you're in journalism, you better be. This entire job is about giving a voice to the voiceless and and speaking truth to power. And in a, in a, in a in a nutshell, that's what journalism is. That's the whole deal. I don't think you can look at major college sports and not see a lot of exploitation uh, right now. So any level of increased freedom is good. Uh, if you're not going to let players capitalize on their likeness, and you're surely not going to pay them to play, at least give them as much freedom as possible. If it was up to you, what would you like to see? So I, I like your idea of one free transfer. Obviously, the devil, though, will be in the details, right? Let's say David Ubbin signs with TCU. You go and you sign with TCU. You get on campus and you realize, you know what? I don't like it. Normally, what would happen is you would have two options. You would either transfer and say, oh, I'm going to transfer to LSU. You would sit out a year and then you would go there. Or or you would go the junior college route and you would say, "Okay, I'm going to go to Tyler Junior College play for one year, and then I'm going to transfer to wherever, you know, wherever I want or whoever, whoever picks it up. So you would have to sort out, okay, so basically you can play for two FBS teams would be kind of the the overall rule. I don't necessarily hate that. I do like your idea of incentivizing academics that say, okay, you have to be an average or above average student in order to have the ability to transfer. The one thing that that makes me tense about your proposal is the idea of coaches. And I think in a lot of respects, that comes down to the fact that you're kind of restricting what is most important for some players. That there are some people who went and they, they committed to... Texas Tech because they want to play for Cliff Kingsbury. And if Cliff Kingsbury goes and gets the Toledo job, I'm not linking Cliff Kingsbury to Toledo. That's <laughs> Breaking not, news. That's not a rumor, okay? <laughs> or is it? No. But if you want to play for Cliff Kingsbury, I think you should be able to play for, for Cliff Kingsbury regardless of, of, of where he, he wants to go. So in kind of in the same respects of, I think, players who sign a national letter of intent for a school, if the coach leaves, should be allowed to be released from their national letter of intent. I think it's only fair that if you're going to give somebody one free transfer, that's truly free. And that if that does mean that you're going to follow Cliff Kingsbury to Toledo, then then so be it. Again, the devil is in the details because you're exactly right. Everything that we've laid out sounds great. It sounds like a good proposal, but the devil is in the details, and people are going to find a way to exploit that for the benefit of the starting 22 they put up. Yeah, here's the thing that worries me on that is, you know, so let's say, so Nebraska doesn't have a quarterback, Uh and let's say Scott Frost is hired at Nebraska in a a hypothetical world, Hmm. and he says, hey, you know, 
and say Nebraska doesn't isn't fully on board with now we're actually entering into the hypothetical. Say Nebraska isn't fully on board with a guy named Scott Frost. He says, "Hey, I got this quarterback, Mackenzie Milton. What if I brought him? Would that interest you?" Mm-hmm. And you talk sure. him into coming. Then I think you open the door for even more exploitation of teenagers. But here's a counter to that: isn't that already happening with assistant coaches? Somewhat, and I don't like that. You know, like it's already. <laughs> I mean, you happening. see, guys, you see, that's what I'm saying. You, you see, high school coaches in basketball mm-hmm. and football getting hired if they have a guy in their program that's special. That makes me want to take a shower. Take, like, take for example, we, a guy we've already mentioned on this program, Ed Oliver. Ed Oliver went from Spring Westfield in the Houston area to University of Houston, and there's a lot of reasons that he did that, and, and I'm, I'm, you know, I, I think that he's been forthcoming about how he really likes it. it's important for him to stay home and all that fun stuff. But let's also not overlook the fact that Tom Herman hired on Corby Meekins, his coach at Westfield, to be on his staff. So it's already, in a lot of respects, happening, and... So at, at that point, then you're really getting into the weeds as to really limiting employment opportunities for a lot of different coaches as well. So I understand your point that you don't want to say, hey, let's hire, you know, um, Urban Meyer because we're going to get to bring JT Barrett with him. But I also think that that is a they're going to be kind of side effects to any sort of change to that and that that would be a side effect that i think overall would make it freer for for students which uh student athletes to transfer which is to me the number one priority of an exercise like this yeah and i think you know the criticisms that the criticisms that'll come out of this and this is something the idea of transfers coaches are always you always hear oh, i'm gonna have to re-recruit my whole roster every year first of all no, you're not. <laughs> right. Uh, would, you know, I, I always point to Penn State and their scandal in 2012 when they had some of the worst penalties that have ever come on a program, you know, this side of SMU. And I think they had 18 total players transfer. That's not that many. And most of them were upperclassmen that were taking advantage of the NCAA's limited free transfer uh, rule. So I just don't – I think that's a lot of scaremongering that's not going to happen. You're never going to have a team that loses 40 guys and you have no roster and you're going to you know, lose every game the next – that's just not really going to happen. Uh, I am sensitive to small school coaches who fear you know, that their players are going to be poached by the bigger programs. But again, we're in – college sports is a system where players are exploited. And if a player has an opportunity at a bigger program – to maximize their pro potential, you shouldn't be angry at that. You, with the grad transfer thing, you always see hurt feelings every now and then. Um, but uh, again, if you're not going to pay players, you should have let them have the ability to maximize their potential to make money at the next level. And if for Calvin Anderson, for example, if that means I'm not going to play at Rice anymore, I'm going to go play at Texas because Texas really wants me, and so does Michigan, mm-hmm. and so does Auburn, and so does Oklahoma, and so does everyone. That's fine. You know, that's that's where we're at. And I think if there's other players that aren't seniors that have, you know, done well in the classroom and have earned that right, I'm fine with that. Uh, I, I, also, I just don't understand fans' fears about college sports turning into free agency. Like, the NBA has 10-day contracts. People, yeah. people are going to be fine. If people have, if you have free transfers, it's going to be fine. It, I, I just don't buy all the fear-mongering. It, and, and that's ultimately what it is, is that people are comfortable with status quo, and it's part of a larger conversation about student-athletes and, and their particular compensation. And, and so when you bring up the idea of, like, oh, I'm going to have to go and re-recruit my entire team, yeah, you're getting paid $2 million. Exactly. Go re-recruit them. If your annual paycheck is over seven digits, yeah, you got to have some serious complaints about your job before I'm going to take those seriously. Right. And, and for me, that is, that is ultimately we're, we're coming to a crux now, um, not, to, not to really send the spiraling into a bigger conversation, but we are coming to, I think, a tipping point in which I think the worm is starting to turn on public opinion as far as compensation for student-athletes. And the whole game is going to get changed. It's kind of like when we talk about um, conference realignment, right? In the end, I do think that there is a there are basically four super conferences that are going to exist. I think that's the, the end game. So right now we're all just kind of shuffling things together until they all get blown up. I think this is what this exercise is, is that, yeah, we're trying to, to give them limited freedom 
right now. It's a transfer, but we're trying to regulate it in such a way. But eventually that dam is going to burst. And there's going to have to be some sort of conversation about the entire system that I think will be will, will make this a lot more interesting and will, will make you know the free agency, so to speak, um, a lot more compelling. I mean, look, there are different rules for different sports in the NCAA. Look at baseball. You know, baseball with the, you know, you can you can go directly to the pros or it's a basically a three year deal that you're there for three years. I think there's a lot of different proposals out there that are going to get thrown out as far as this transfer rule is concerned. But for me, my number one goal as far as any sort of transfer rule would be to allot the players as much freedom within reason as possible. Yeah, I mean, if you haven't read it, go Google it. The NCAA versus the Board of Regents of the University of Oklahoma in 1984. It changed everything. The case went before the Supreme Court, allowed conferences to negotiate their own TV deals, sort of ushered in this billion-dollar era of college sports that we have. Uh, DVR was a factor, mm-hmm. the value of live sports. That bubble probably popped a little bit, but this is not 1985. You know, college sports in 2018 are very, very different. And the worst reason in the world to do anything is because that's just the way we've always done it. Yeah. Change is going to happen. When, when assistant coaches are accidentally breaking federal law and getting the FBI involved, yeah. ah, this is not the best system. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and, and in the end, and again, I think that the <laughs> – I think America is getting more woke <laughs> to uh, to what's going on in NCAA and, and, and just – how and, and it, it always but you know it's it's something that's 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 very odd to me and i think it happens a lot with the olympics as well uh but and i i, I will admit that i'm cribbing this from from another excellent podcast the press box with brian curtis and david shoemaker on the ringer good but show they, they brought excellent show but they brought up the great point about when they were talking about the coverage of the olympics as like leading into the olympics there's all this talk about scandal. It's all about, oh, man, are the buildings going to get ready? Oh, wow, look, the Russians are doping. Oh, this and that and this and that. But once the games start, it's all raw, raw sports, USA, everything's sunshine and daffodils. And I think that's kind of what happens in college sports as well. You mentioned that you were in uh, – you were off at your, your uh, mansion, McMansion, <laughs> watching uh, college basketball. I think that there's always a conversation to be like, man, you know, these kids are not getting paid. Like, you know, they're bringing in millions of dollars. Coca-Cola is, is forking out a half billion dollars to be a, a corporate partner of the uh, of the NCAA. And there's all this kind of hemming and hawing and hand-wringing. And then the ball gets tossed in the air. And UMBC happens. Right. <laughs> and then what are we talking about? Yeah. We're talking about, wow, did you see that game? Boy, I want a Coca-Cola all of a sudden to wash down <laughs> that refreshing upset. Ignorance like, is bliss. Yes. And and so I think in a lot of respects we are careening toward, we're creeping towards um, some sort of resolution on a bigger scale. Uh, but And maybe this transfer talk is what's, going to, is what's going to start that kind of snowball from rolling downhill to get us to a point where we are rethinking the entire college sports I think so. Anyway, change is coming to the sport. Here's hoping it's change that's good for athletes who deserve an opportunity to exercise a little agency within a system that largely exploits them. Moving on, I call this a new segment, but this is a new show, so really all segments are new. I think Greg coined this. Anyway, we're calling it, hey, remember that guy? Yeah. This This man. I, I have to tell you, it's early. This is my favorite segment. It's the best segment we've ever done, I think. Yeah. But the flip side of it is it's also the worst segment we've ever done, so <laughs> we'll see. This man is a Texas legend. I, I tip my cap every time I hear his beautiful name. Occasionally, we're going to have some of these guys on the show, the Hey, Remember That guys, uh, catch up with them, relive their old days. But today, I just want to remind you of his existence uh, because he's been out of the consciousness of Texans for too long. That cannot stand this man, Javorski Lane. Ugh. He is quite simply my favorite player in Big 12 history. Uh, if you don't remember him, Google his YouTube highlights. Try to avoid his broken leg highlight. I do not recommend watching that. The world needs more 285-pound running backs. I cannot emphasize this point more. There is no counterpoint to that argument. 
he was a touchdown machine. But there's something about that feeling, seeing him run off tackle, the hole open up, and a linebacker staring down the J train. Bravely. Knowing what is about to happen. What's about to happen is he's about to get run over, and it's going to be amazing to watch. Uh, Just thinking about it has me tearing up right now. He scored 49 times a school record. Greg, what is your favorite memory of the J Train Javorski Lane? You know, you're, you mentioned that he's your he's your favorite player in Big Twelve history, and I think that there's there's a lot of truth to that. I want to be clear: you didn't say he was the best player in college. In he might have been. History. <laughs> I will tell you, Sam Bradford, Colt McCoy, I, I step will, aside. <laughs> I will agree with you. He is not the best player in Big Twelve history. He is top five most fun players in in Big Twelve history, and dare I say, college football history. He's I mean, up there. He is so, so unique. Much, when he got ahead of steam going, there was nothing like it. I will direct you my favorite Javorski Lane story, and I can remember exactly where I was watching this game. It was in two thousand and eight, and it was Texas A and M taking on winless Army. <laughs> Winless Army. It's a one and two A and M team, kind of scuffling. Nothing's really working, and then they take on Army and they get a scare. This game goes. This game goes in seven uh, twenty one to seventeen, uh, and and all of a sudden in the fourth quarter, A and M's up. They're trying to hold on. They go three and out. A and M gets you know A and M's defense gets back on there. Army's driving down using that 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 vintage triple option offense. A&M's defense, they get a stop. Four minutes left in the game. They get a stop. They get the ball back at the Army 49. And they have four minutes to kill. They have, they have to kill three minutes and 58 seconds. And who do they turn to? I'm guessing the J-Train. They turn to the J-Train. Michael Goodson runs for nine yards. Okay, nice start. Nice start. Army, Army bangs a timeout. Okay? Still 3.58 left in this game. And that's until... Javorski home. Javorski Lane said, guys, <laughs> hop on my back. I'll take us home. Three-yard rush for a first down. 12-yard rush for a first down. Four-yard rush. I'll tell you what three, he's not doing right now. He's not supporting the troops with those runs. Three-yard <laughs> three rush. Army calls their last timeout. At this point, they are at the Army 18. It's third and three. Javorski Lane, for his sixth consecutive carry, gets two yards. Clock is running. It's fourth and one. They have to get one more playoff. Javorski Lane, his seventh consecutive carry, 10 yards to the Army Six Church. (laughs) That is seven consecutive carries. You want to talk about a closer? He ran seven times for basically, he ran seven times for 34 yards. And look, punishment. Those, those numbers, they're not going to wow you. Seven <laughs> carries for 34 yards. If you, that's when they had moved him. That's when uh, uh, Mike Sherman had moved him to fullback. They're not going to blow you away. But you know what? Javorski Lane took the Aggies home. And they staved off what would have been an embarrassing loss to, uh, to a, an Army team that fell uh, to 0-4 and, and eventually uh, uh, went. Uh, how did they go in 2017? Oh, my my thing's screwing up. In any case. It probably wasn't great. It probably wasn't great. They started off 0-4. This was before the Munkin Hive showed up. So, Like Marcus Davenport, who I wrote about on Texas Football earlier this month, Javorski Lane was only 4 pounds when he was born. Premature baby was only 125 pounds in junior high before he jumped up to 230 in ninth grade. A great piece of Javorski Lane trivia. You're going to appreciate this. I'm, I'm ready. My body is ready. Let me take you back to 2004 Texas high school playoffs. He's a Lufkin Panther. Lufkin Panthers versus Cedar Park. A young Javorski throws a touchdown pass to a fresh-faced receiver, giving him his first touchdown catch. No. That wide receiver's name. No. Are you kidding me? Des Bryant. Wow. The first touchdown catch of Des Bryant's high school career came from Javorski Lane. That, listen, just when you, th- you think his career has peaked, it only got greater. I have to tell you, I love fun facts. <laughs> That's a fact. Extremely fun. <laughs> I'm having, having a lot of fun with that fact. I, it was amazing. Des Bryant confirmed this on Twitter. That's amazing. Like four years ago. I had to look it up. 
because I didn't believe it. Wow. But it's true. He bounced around the NFL. Sadly, you mentioned he moved to fullback as a senior when Mike Sherman took over for the Dennis Francione mm-hmm. disaster via newsletter at Texas A&M. <laughs> but I will always and forever remember him as the thunderous half of the Thunder and Lightning combo alongside Mike Goodson. In 2007, Lane, Goodson, and future Dallas Cowboy Stephen McGee all rushed for more than 700 yards. That's kind of crazy. This isn't Navy. Uh, but seeing him in person as a wide-eyed junior at the University of Missouri was outstanding. He scored in that game at Faroe Field, or as it was known on the NCAA 2006 game, Ferret Field. <laughs> Sadly, I mentioned his broken leg. He never really came back from that. But when you ask me, hey, remember that guy? When it comes to Javorski, my answer will always be forever. One of the images that I will always have of Javorski Lane is the beauty of a player wearing number 11 with a gut. <laughs> that is just, just uh, it's, it's too perfect. It's too, it's, that's, that's what number 11s should look like. It's true. It's true. So that brings us to today's guest. UTSA coach Frank Wilson. I didn't know Frank before we made our trek to San Antonio, but I really enjoyed this conversation. He's a guy who's not afraid to speak his mind. Uh, he's got a lot to say, and he's very good at getting that point across. Uh, even when he's angry, he's not going to let that anger cra- uh, cloud his perspective. Uh, I've heard great things about him before I got to meet him, and I, I do think both he and UTSA have bright futures. Uh, so come down to San Antonio with us for a chat with Frank Wilson. So shifting to the team here at the program at large, when you took over this job, I mean, what's, what's your vision for what UTSA can be and, and, and where you can take this program? Yeah, you know, when I look at programs like the University of Houston, uh, when I look at uh, programs uh, that have uh, Oregon, you know, programs that weren't always or, or even if you go back to the 70s, a Miami program that was a doormat until, you know, the Michael Irvins and Warren Saps made the U what it is. Uh, I envision us being this program uh, that continually ascends the fastest rising program in college football, that uh, we have a foundation now that allows us um, to grow. We're able to recruit to a different type of player. Uh, I think the coaches that we have assembled allowed us to develop players at a very high level, guys that have experience in winning uh, national championships, Super Bowl, bowl games, and et cetera, uh, that know how to do it, that have been trained to do it, and know how to train players to get to that point. And so I think our program um, is one that will continue to ascend in the right direction with a type of uh, – players that we're recruiting in a city that continues to blossom. You, you look at our university. One of the things that attracted me to UTSA was the fact that <clears throat> you look at a university that had grown so much in a 10-year in a time span that it was unreal, that was on par to become a top-tier university. Uh, and that then said to me, uh, what we want to do with our football program coach is make it a top-tier university. Um, and we think you can get us that. It was one of the most humbling moments in my life uh, that I embraced because uh, I believe it. I've drank the Kool-Aid that we can be a top-tier football institution, uh, that we can compete at a high level. And, you know, you, you know we get those opportunities to, to go to uh, College Station, uh, to go to Waco and play a, a, a quality Baylor team. Uh, and we'll do so again this year going to Kansas State and, and going to Arizona State and Tempe. And then in years to come to go to Baton Rouge, you know. And so I think when we – and we look forward to it. You know, it's not for us, hey, we're going there to be their homecoming. No, we're going there to compete, to win a game. Mm-hmm. And, and believe it that we can win the game. We'll have chances to win the game uh, because of the personnel and the development of our football team and our program. How would you describe where the program is right now relative to where you want it to be? Uh, we still got a ways to go. 
we still have a ways to go. Uh, but the, the bright thing is we have a, a president <clears throat> and an athletic director uh, who, who's come in and have taken uh, the, the wonderful foundation that Ricardo Romo and Lynn Hickey have laid those roots and, and, and now ready to fertilize it and let it and let the city reap the state reap the benefits of it. And so I think we're primed for it. I think all the steps are, are aligning themselves uh, in facilities and resources with uh, the business leaders, with uh, our UT Board of Regents, um, with our, our donors, our boosters, our alumnus, that we get it. Okay, this is what we need to do to take it. Let's, let's go there. And so that's what makes it so exciting you know, to be able to build something from ground zero. Um, I think, you know, the administration and coaching staff that were here when this program started uh, did a great job. They were the right people at the right time. You couldn't get a better name than Larry Coker at that time. I think he and his staff did outstanding. I think the vision of, of, of Dr. Romo, of Lynn Hickey, was fantastic. And I think now we're in position to really elevate ourselves and, and go to that next tier. Mm-hmm. What was it like for you as a coach to win six games, though, and, and not get that reward of the bowl at the end? What was that like? Yeah, it was, it was disappointing in the sense that uh, we qualified. Mm-hmm. Um, we qualified, uh, and I say to our team, um, but we allowed our destiny to be in someone else's hand because you became bold eligible. You didn't become bold certified. And so with seven, you're certified. And there were so many opportunities for us to be able to do that. Um, and so here's what we'll do this year. We'll put our destiny in our hand. We won't leave it in somebody's hand and, and, and hopeful that uh, the team from Tallahassee or wherever don't qualify and knock us out, whatever whatever it is that all happened. Um, you know, yeah, it was disappointing, but we, we, we can't point the finger at nobody else but ourselves because we control our destiny. And it, it was attainable, and we didn't get the job done. Uh, we'll be better this year. We'll, we'll rectify that. Yeah, what did you think of all the Florida State stuff? Because that was really <laughs> confusing. Because it was like, well, they made a special game, and then it was like, okay, well, then now they're, 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 they they're didn't meet the, the, yeah. the qualifications, but then they did. What did you make of all that? Yeah, I'm going to take the high road. <laughs> uh, I, I thought we were deserving. Um, evidently, the the uh, the bowl coalition or whomever they they felt you know uh, other teams were were more noteworthy, and so we accepted and uh, we'll, we'll do better this year. Mm-hmm. To be a team that, that that grabs a hold of your destiny, what what do you feel like is missing? What 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 do you guys have to do to to be that team? <clears throat> yeah, um, I think we have to do a better job of, of finishing. You look at two years in a row in the fourth quarter of games, literally, there's whether we're up. Or behind, at some point it's a 14-point game, and I think we're we're in position to finish, and we still hadn't quite learned how to do it consistently. We have we've won a lot of fourth quarter games, but we've been in position to finish where we have not. Uh, games where we may have been ahead or been been behind, and all we needed was a stop. All we needed was a first down. And uh, or being in the red zone to, to finish off a team and settling for three. You know, there's so many ways we can improve ourselves. Um, and, and I think now there's, there's a body of work that we can look at and say, okay, here are, uh, here's our team. Here are the things we did very well. Here's the things that we were solid on. And here's where we need our most improvement. And I think the things that we did very well and the things that we need most improved are so close. The difference in us being a really good football team is, is, is inches. It's all around us. And so we're, uh, we're in position to do so. So hopefully we were able to correct those measures this, this season and, um, and, and finish better. Mm-hmm. Well, while we through the process of, of, uh, of bringing Al Board to support, where, where, what was your relationship like? How did you yeah. land on him? Just what, what, what sort of walked me through kind of your search yeah. and, and how you landed on Al? So, um, you know, there were some, some ideas that I knew I wanted 
the direction of our football program offensively, um, more specifically to head in. And, uh, and so I wanted to find uh, a dynamic person if, if, if we could. Uh, I went back and forth toyed with doing it myself. Uh, but I enjoy being a head coach. I enjoy talking to the defensive staff. I enjoy having input with our special teams, managing the game, the clock, the timeouts. And I think sometimes when the head coach takes on the role as a play caller as well, uh, it takes away from some of those things because you're making adjustments, you're convert, conversating with, with the offensive staff, and you're doing that while the game's going on. And so I went back and forth with it. And, uh, and I just wanted to have comfort with someone that I thought could um, bring to bear uh, what I thought was, would give us our best chance. And that was uh, an offense that took the personnel that we had and maximized it and not limited us. And a, a, a offense, a philosophy that was personnel driven more than scheme driven. Uh, that based on the personnel that we have in this particular call, we're designing it to go here or here to our best people who will make the play. And so uh, when I looked around the country, there was uh, only a handful of people that had played in multiple offensive schemes and adapted in the manner that that uh, that Al did, whether at UCLA with K. McNown, whether it was at uh, Auburn with Jason Campbell and Ronnie and Cadillac, or or at Michigan with Shoelace and those guys, or at San Jose State. Everywhere he went, you saw a guy with an uncanny ability to be able to maximize the potential of the quarterback and of the people around him. And so, um, you know, and it wasn't a flash by night guy, or it wasn't just. Uh, we're going air raid. Let's throw it every play. There's a method to what we do, you know. And so uh, I just my and there's nothing wrong with air raid. That's just not who we are. I believe in and and um, playing football where we're all responsible to one another. The offense, the defense, and special teams. And the objective is to win the game mm-hmm. in spite of statistical deals. And so uh, that's what that's what we're aiming to do. We're aiming to win games. Uh, and maximize the potential of our talent that we have uh, in spite of what we have. Whatever we have, let's make it the best that we have. And so um, after going against Elmore just in my years at uh, Mississippi, um, and he was at Auburn at that time, and then watching even from afar, knowing what they did at Auburn this year and him having input with those guys, um, uh, he was a guy that, that fit the bill of exactly what we needed. I think we got the perfect candidate in there. Mm-hmm. In this state especially, there is that pressure. Maybe not to go full air raid, yeah. but the half spread concepts. Yeah. What's, what's your approach to that? And, 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 you know, when you get questions about that on the recruiting trail, like what, how, how often is that coming up? And, and what's well, the approach to that? Well, we've gotten it spread. See, people, here's what happened. If you, if, if you throw it every play, people say, that's spread often. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. Oh, that's West Coast, and, and so people don't even understand identity of offense. You know, they, if it's five wide, yep, that's it. And that's <laughs> not it. That there's a lot of teams that are really good football teams that run the ball effectively, throw the ball effectively, in a manner that is tempo controlled. And I do believe there's various tempos in attacking a defense. There's a time to speed it up. It's time to be a little more. Um, deliberate in your approach, and there's a time where it's nonstop. And so we have all that in our offense. Uh, we've done all that even even in the past. We'll probably be a little more uh, diversified this year than we have to get to what we need based on our personnel. Um, but uh, I, don't, I don't feel a pressure to, to be air raid. Uh, I feel a pressure to and pressure from within and on my own to win. Win. That's that's what I'm paid to do. Win the game. Do you feel like you're just kind of waiting on this program? Not sorry, waiting, but you you guys need that breakthrough win that makes everybody's ears perk up. Do you feel like you've had it? What what where do you kind of stand on on? Uh, what I think the, we need to consistently win. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, 
you know, and, and, and coming close isn't good enough, you know, and, and playing A&M close at A&M and having the lead with minutes left in the winding moments against Arizona State or even beating a Baylor team, it, it, that's not enough. You have, you have to win on a consistent basis, and that's our desire. Mm-hmm. Was it disappointing for you at all last year to beat Baylor, a team that's had so much success, and then to see them not have the kind of year that they had, had grown to and it almost devalues in some way your win? Not at all. Mm-hmm. Not at all. They're a very talented football team. They have a new coaching staff. He'll do a great job there. Uh, they're like anybody in their first year trying to find their way, weeding out, putting in your system to to be able um, to say that it devalues in a – uh, lost to the Longhorns by three. Yeah, so I win not really <laughs> count. Oh, I win counts. And, and mm-hmm. so we, we enjoyed it, uh, and we enjoyed the atmosphere of it. Um, I respect that program uh, tremendously. I respect that head coach tremendously. And so we're very proud to be able to get that, that win, and, you know, they'll, he'll be fine. I mean, and certainly not my objective to, to worry about them, but I'm, I'm, um, I know him. Mm-hmm. And I know the type of coach he is. They'll, they'll do well. Um, we just want to be able to do it. You know, we we really liked our chances playing against the Houston team. Unfortunately, we had a natural disaster that nullified that. But um, you know that to to not have to be in camp and to not play that game and then another you know. So um, I like I like uh, I'm disappointed that we didn't finish the way we'd like. I'm overjoyed by the win that we had against a quality program uh, and talented team that Baylor is. Mm-hmm. Tom Herman got a lot of attention when he was at Houston for trying to essentially build a wall around Houston, and let's build a team that's Houston. <laughs> mm-hmm. Do you think the same type of thing is possible uh, for UTSA in San Antonio to, to yeah. be a San Antonio team? Yeah, I do. I do. Um, you know, everywhere I've ever – I think that, that, that has merit anywhere you're at. So whether I was in Oxford, Mississippi, Baton Rouge, Louisiana, uh, Knoxville, Tennessee, you've always tried to do that. You want to do well in your city, and then you want to build or extend beyond that to bordering cities and other parts of your state um, before you go anywhere else. And so, yeah, uh, we, we'd like to be able to do that. Um, I think there's some guys in the San Antonio metropolitan area that you'll get to see this year, guys like Bryce Rivers and Frank Harris, uh, Robert Fuentes, guys who may not have played a whole bunch already that will come to bear this year, we're anticipating. Uh, and we'll continue, you know, what with Spencer Burford and, and those guys and from Wagner. Guys in this area, uh, we want to do well. And it's, uh, it's quality football here. So when you go and you, uh, you go into – uh, Judson, you go into uh, Steele, uh, you go into those schools like that, you, you have to have your program intact to make it uh, attractive for that student-athlete and his parent to want to come. And so we have, a, we have a responsibility in building it to that status uh, that will give us a chance to keep the best players in San Antonio. Mm-hmm. Uh- Josiah is a guy who's had a lot of impact for you guys. Why was he able to have that kind of impact so early, and especially as a guy that wasn't as heavily recruited as some of these other guys? Two star was defensive tackle, I think. Now he's a linebacker. You guys, what, 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 what do you think is the best way to explain See, that's that? The thing. Uh, that's that piece. So even with Marcus, you know, we didn't recruit Marcus, um, but I think we had a role in developing Marcus. We didn't recruit Josiah, and when we got him, Josiah was still a defensive lineman. Mm-hmm. Akel Bass was a safety. You know, we, we had guys, and so it, it, it took uh, the ability to, to filter through all that stuff and get guys in the right place where they can be contributors. And I think, uh, you know, standing him up and let him be what he is in an instinctive, uh, very uh, aggressive football player, but yet controlled. And so uh, in year two, he became more knowledgeable, more savvy. He didn't just go. Uh, uh, in year one, he, he kind of just went. Uh, but the, the, the compromise was that, you know, we were dropping markers in coverage and just playing a three-down defense. He was the buzz, hook, flat player. Uh, well, this year, we sent Marcus, 
And so there's a give and take to it. And and I think that was the right thing to do because I thought he was one of the better pass rushers in the country. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, um, yeah, I, I think Josiah is, uh, is a phenomenal talent. I think he has potential uh, to be a dominant player continuously in this conference. One of the better backers, in my opinion, in the country that I think will play on Sundays. Um, I think if not for injury, his year is even bigger than it was last year. Uh, but he's he's worked hard, and he, he looks better than ever right now in our training sessions. Mm-hmm. So we're expecting big things from him. Uh, talking about you personally as a coach, who do you feel like you kind of mold yourself after? Is there a, yeah. a guy that you really try to not necessarily be, but yeah. – but, uh, I think it's a combination. I don't think it's one guy. Uh, if you ask me from a child, uh, I revered Eddie Robinson. Uh, he was bigger than life to me. He coached my uncles. And um, in summers, I'd go to Grambling, Louisiana, and watch him prowl the fields and, wow, you know, and, you know, took a picture on his lap. And, you know, <laughs> it, was, it was great. Uh, I think as I... I've evolved as a, a young high school coach. Um, there were, you know, so many coaches um, that I was influenced by, you know, and it's kind of how Frank Self and I kind of bumped into each other because uh, I enjoyed spending time with Tommy Bowden and, and Rich Rod and those guys at Tulane during that time, and he was the tight end coach who had time for me. <laughs> and so I would go there and study ball with those guys and, uh, then certainly, uh, you know, Coach Saban and the impact that he had on the state of Louisiana uh, when he was at LSU. And so several of my student-athletes went to school there, but we modeled a lot of our practices, uh, our structure, our organization, uh, and a guy who prides himself on studying leadership just watched how he led his team and, and ran his program. Uh, I got introduced to Pete Carroll by Ed Ogeron. Uh, a lot of the things that we do on a day-to-day, week-to-week basis uh, is based off, uh, you know, what Coach Carroll did or do and uh, as capturing his players. I think there's nobody that does it better uh, than he does. And then, uh, you know, having an opportunity to be around guys like Dennis Green and Tony Dungy and just study football and just study what it is to be a pro from those guys have all impacted me. So I don't, I don't know if there's one, but I've taken some from each one of those guys that have allowed me to grow. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I've studied the, the dynamic a lot of, of just minority coaches in general. And for you, do you feel like, you know, especially with how many opportunities uh, are limited in some ways, do you feel a responsibility when you're filling staff positions to, to look at minority candidates, give them a longer look than other people would? Do you feel that uh, in, in, your, in your head? Um, I don't know. Uh, I'll say it this way. If, if a guy has a talent that I think has been overlooked, uh, and I respect the job that he does, and I think he adds value to us, um, I see no color. So when I hired Pete Golding, I met Pete Golding um, at Delta State um, when we were entertaining uh, Dave Aranda, all right? And he was his, uh, came behind him uh, at Delta State and then went to southeastern Louisiana, and then he was a position coach at Southern Miss, but I, I knew that that guy had something about him. When I was a grad assistant, young coach at Nickel State, so was Jason Rollins. Then I went into high school coaching, and he was a co-coordinator at McNeese. And I always respect the way that he handled himself. So even I was trying to – I got two for one in my mind. I'm going to get two coordinators, and, well, you know, and I didn't know if I was going to code them or not. Wind up going with Pete. But when he left, I knew I had somebody in place where we wouldn't miss a beat because Jason was plenty talented enough to be able to do it. And it wasn't that I'm going to do it because he's a minority. I'm going to do it because he's very talented. It wasn't that I wanted to do it with Pete because he's just uh, 30 years old, how old he was, and he's young. He's very talented. And so uh, studying people yet again, he had a talent about himself. 
that drew me to him. Um, when um, Ricky Brumfield, who's now at Virginia, who was our special team coordinator, and he was at Union College, and all these, um, whatever the school name in Virginia, always West Virginia, you wouldn't get mad at me because I can never remember <laughs> this. Uh, you remember I saw the F. Anyway, Fort- Fordham? No, Fordham's like East East Coast. West Virginia. Uh, I forget. Division two. Anyway, mm-hmm. so I watched him, and then when I was at LSU, we interviewed him, and so I logged it. Yeah, if I ever become a coach, that's a guy I'd wanted. And we didn't hire him at LSU, uh, but it gave me an opportunity to see him present, to teach, to articulate himself to a room of other uh, peers, professionals. And so um, it wasn't necessarily that I'm going to look for this minority. It was guys that were very, very talented. Mm -hmm. And when he was at Western Kentucky, they were very, very good. When he came here for special teams, we were very, very good. And so um, I don't know, you know, if those guys get opportunities, you know, if, if they don't necessarily get them here. Sometimes they do, sometimes they don't. Uh, Charlie Camp was a guy who was with me at Mississippi initially and then kind of bounced around. But I had, you know, years ago when I was a high school coach and he was at Oregon State, he recruited Keenan Lewis and Dennis Christopher and uh, Mike Wallace. And so I got into coach, college coaching. And so Mike Wallace didn't go to Oregon State. He came with me to Mississippi. That's how all that happened. But, you know, just from guys established uh, – a reputation that's beyond reproach as far as professionalism and how they handle themselves and how they teach and uh, how they impact the youth. And that's appealing to me because I think that's what our profession is about. And if they have an ability to do that, we presume in spite of that, you know, I'm not trying to fill a quota in one way or the other. I want the best guy that gives us a chance to win. And, and, and it would be fair to say sometimes minorities don't get those chances. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, for you coming up, I mean, your, your reputation was always as a great recruiter. But the, it almost feels like the subtext in that is, well, he's not great at X's and O's. Mm-hmm. Does that frustrate you when, that, yeah. when those kind of things? And, and do you feel like I want to dispel that? Like what's, what's your approach when, yeah, when you hear that kind dispelled. of thing? Mm-hmm. I think it's dispelled. I think uh, there, there's a time... Uh, and it, it's, it's, it's unfortunate that if I'm sitting at any other school or any other head coach who has a there's, – there's, there's not a better recruiter than Urban Meyer, who never was a coordinator. But no one ever questions his ability for football. There's not a better recruiter than Nick Saban. But ever questions football. He's a great coach, yeah, and he'll get good players. Well, when for whatever reason, for minorities, if you are a great recruiter, evaluator, that has to be it for some people, and they can't. They they're not. Uh, they can't see you beyond that. And so, uh, I've tried my entire life to to work my behind off to be the best teacher, coach mentor I could be uh, professional. I don't apologize for having an ability to identify, to evaluate, and to develop. Uh, but no one talks about it. They just say recruit. Recruit. <laughs> well, that's just the relationship part. What about the identification? What about the projection? What about the evaluation? What about the development? Somebody had to develop them because there's a lot of talented people that don't get developed. And so uh, I don't try to uh, compete and defend it. I allow the body of work to speak for itself. Um, And so I think it has. Um, You look at our team, I think you'll see a disciplined football team that's fundamentally sound, that plays extremely hard, that will be competitive and in position to win every game that we play. And uh, that's all I can do, you know, mm-hmm. in that regard. So uh, I don't chase it, you know, to, to always want to defend it. Uh, I go about doing my job to the best of my ability, and I allow it to speak for itself. Mm-hmm. And 
but even here now, even when we've won games, when we've beaten really good teams, and we're beyond it, it'll still come up. You know, you just ask yourself, mm-hmm. hey, you still worry about, nah, that's behind me. I, I, don't, <laughs> I, don't, I don't see myself. I don't know, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I think to entertain it is to, to empower it. Mm-hmm. And so I, uh, I don't entertain it. Uh, I just do my job. No different than the next man, to the best of my ability. Mm-hmm. Uh, finally, I need a good Les Miles story. <laughs> what do <are> you? <laughs> Les is a different dude. What do you? <laughs> you know, Les. Les was so good to me. He's he's in that group of people that influenced me as well. Because here's what he did. He gave me uh, an opportunity. Uh, so many times, people. Um, he tapped me as uh, his associate head coach, uh, assistant head coach, and a lot of times that's just a title to be honest with you. It wasn't. And so whether we were dealing with fundraising efforts and dining or dealing with state legislators or donors or boosters and what they call the Tiger Tour, he do five, I do five. Uh, when we dealt with uh, our team and we had issues, whether it was that of the liaison between campus police and the team, of academics and the team, of residential life in the team, of camp, of con- whatever it was, I'm so fortunate that he gave me an opportunity, blessed me with an opportunity to say, I need you to take care of this. I need you to go meet with King Alexander, our president. I need you to go meet with Joe Oliva and discuss these things. This is what we're trying to get done. Uh, and it was the greatest thing that could happen because it was on-job experience that uh, you can't speak to, that you actually have to do it. It has to be practical. And so I got an opportunity to do all of those things there. So I'm a big Les Miles guy. I love Les for what he did for my career and believing in me and trusting me and giving me those type of responsibilities. All right, great, a, a Les Miles story. Yeah, see, the, the best ones are probably ones I can't tell. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good one. <laughs> oh, man. Here's, here's one. Um, to, he taught me how to never waver, uh, how to never flinch in the face of adversity. And the reality was um, probably when adversity hit, we were at our very best. And so whether it was uh, the ballroom fight incident, whether it was the, the, the dismissal of Tyron Matthews, um, in season we're driving to a game and find out his sister's involved in an accident that killed her uh, at the hotel, or the night that we're at a game, his sons get injured, rush to the hospital to leave there to go to the morgue to identify his deceased mother, uh, a strong man, a very strong man that took care of his responsibilities as a husband, as a father, and as a leader of our football team and never let one or the other detour him from being, uh, from taking away his responsibilities. And so uh, I know it's not a funny one, but when, when things get tough, when things don't go our way, I reflect on how he handled those adverse times in such a classy, stern uh, manner. And mm-hmm. I try to mimic those things. Have you thought about bringing him aboard as a consultant or analyst or any kind of tape role or anything? I would love to. I don't know if he would come. <laughs> or if I could afford him. <laughs> They're paying him a lot of money uh, to do TV. Yeah. So, uh, But I talk to him. probably talk to him once a month to yeah. check in with him. And he'll him, hey, Frankie, I love you, man. You hear me? <laughs> I miss you. <laughs> that sounds like Les. I can hear it. I can hear it. And, uh, just very endearing, uh, but a wonderful guy. Mm-hmm. Well, anything else you feel like I should know or we didn't ask about? No, I think, uh, you know, here's, here's one thing I'd like to point out. You know, it's this job and the, the little success that we've had thus far 
have become, whether we were fortunate enough to get Bo Davis, only to lose him to the Detroit Lions, or uh, right now uh, with David Turner and getting him from A&M, that guys look at this program now and think, okay, yeah, that's, that's a desired spot I can go to. I can go there. We can have great success, and um, I'll feel good about it. And so we're able not just to recruit to the really good player, but we're able to recruit to the very quality football coach as well uh, in an ever-turning, revolving door of college football and the, uh, how violent or volatile the coaching carousel could be. So that's today's show. Thanks for tuning in. A special thanks to Frank Wilson and our fearless producer, Max Thompson, as well as my co-host, Greg Tepper. And, of course, thank you to Javorski Lane for being Javorski Lane. See you all next week where our guest will be North Texas's Seth Luttrell. And all I'll say is he tells one of the best Mike Leach stories I've ever heard. That's a tease. That is a tease. See you guys again next week.